0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex work, mental illness, eating disorders, domestic violence, sexual assault, gun violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The Black Widow We know her from classic films of the 1940s, a temptress who draws men close, wins their trust, and ruins their lives. We think of her as an archetype, a character, but every once in a while, a woman comes along who seems to be the real, flesh-and-blood version. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was this kind of woman. Someone so toxic that no less than five men involved with her met an untimely end. Some through natural causes, some under mysterious circumstances, and others directly by her hand. It seemed that wherever Marjorie went, death and destruction followed close behind. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll meet Marjorie Deal Armstrong, a real-life black widow who was responsible for one of the most bizarre and deadly robberies in history. We'll explore her volatile relationships with the men in her life, her battles with mental illness, and her ever-increasing desire for more money. Then we'll learn how her greed led her to hatch a convoluted bank heist involving a collar bomb, a captive prisoner, and a shocking death caught on camera. Next week, we'll look at the aftermath of what became known as the Pizza Bomber case. We'll follow authorities as they try to get to the bottom of the scheme. Then we'll see how, years later, the FBI finally narrowed in on Marjorie as the mastermind behind the entire plot Listen for free on Spotify. Marjorie Deal was born in February of 1949 to Agnes and Harold, working class Pennsylvanians who lived in the small city of Erie. Harold was a construction foreman who liked to drink, Agnes, a schoolteacher with high expectations for her daughter. Because both of her parents worked, Marjorie's childhood was stable and comfortable. As far as material matters went, Marjorie was never left wanting for anything. Still, she had a difficult relationship with both of her parents. Her father's trips to the local bars weighed on her, even at a young age. And from her mother, she felt constant pressure to live up to her expectations. Luckily, Marjorie had an escape. Her grandparents. They lived right next door. Around the time she was eight years old, Marjorie started spending more and more time with them. Her grandfather George was a police officer who Marjorie idolized. He made her feel safe and protected, and if she had it her way, he would have been her real father. But there was another reason she loved her grandparents they were rich. Marjorie's own parents were well off, but her grandparents had even more money. And young Marjorie was obsessed. She loved looking at the stacks of cash in their safe. Sometimes they even let her deposit their mortgage payments at the bank for them. Each time, she imagined what it would feel like for all that money to be hers. And one day, it would be when she inherited it, as she expected to do when they passed away. Even at her young age, Marjorie understood what having money could do for her. She already believed herself better than her peers and their working-class families. Having money of her own would ensure everyone else could see that, too. This sense of superiority likely came from her mother, because Agnes Deal also thought she was better than the people around her. And her lofty opinion of herself wasn't wholly unfounded. She'd earned a college degree at a time when that was rare for a woman, and had then attended graduate classes at Columbia University. She expected her daughter to be just as much of a trailblazer as she'd been. But Agnes was also extremely critical of Marjorie. She wanted her to always be better than her peers. This pressure likely came from a good place, but it had unfortunate consequences. Namely, narcissism, one of the many mental illnesses that plagued Marjorie throughout her life. Before we continue with Marjorie's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. There are many ways that a child can develop narcissistic tendencies at a young age. According to psychoanalysts Heinz Kohut and Otto Kernberg, one of the most common causes can be excessive criticism from parents. Of course, not every child who's critiqued becomes a narcissist. There also has to be a level of hostility in the criticism, along with a general lack of warmth and responsiveness. When all these factors come together, as they did in the Deal household, it can lead to feelings of inadequacy. In order to compensate for this, kids inflate their self-worth and seek approval and admiration from others. In other words, narcissism becomes a defense mechanism. Agnes and Harold noticed these changes in their daughter, but instead of trying to tamp down their criticism, they doubled down. From there, the pressure began to manifest in even more dangerous ways. At 12, Marjorie reportedly developed anorexia. At one point, she claimed she was hospitalized when her weight dropped from 135 pounds to just 90. For two years, Marjorie said, she struggled with the disorder until finally medical professionals suggested a change of scenery, or to put it less delicately, a break from her mother. So when she was 14, Marjorie moved in with her grandparents. Under their supervision, she blossomed. At school, she began playing cello in the Junior Philharmonic, joined both speech and French club, and was even elected hall monitor. On top of all that, she was academically gifted, too. By the time she graduated in 1967, she was among the top 12 students in her class. From there, she went on to enroll at Mercyhurst College. It was a local school, but that didn't matter to Marjorie. In fact, that's what she wanted. For all her ambition, Marjorie had little desire to leave Erie. It seems she just wanted to be at the top of her little world. And she didn't mess around. Three years later, in 1970, 21-year-old Marjorie graduated a year early with two bachelor's degrees, one in sociology and another in social work. But despite her sterling accolades, Marjorie didn't have her sights set on a particular career. She just wanted to find a stable job. So she signed up with an employment agency and tried to find her calling. She worked various secretarial positions, but none of them felt right. She thought she was better than that anyway. But soon, her career goals fell to the wayside. Marjorie met someone. 26-year-old Bill Rothstein. Bill was an eccentric, jack-of-all-trades type. He was a handyman, a substitute teacher, and also worked at his parents' Rola Cola plant. He never finished school, in fact, people knew him as a guy who never finished anything, but that didn't stop him from believing he was the smartest person in every room. He fancied himself an intellectual, and was attracted to Marjorie's brain as much as he was to her looks. After a whirlwind courtship, Bill and Marjorie got engaged. Marjorie moved in with Bill and his parents, and they got her a job working in the deli at the Rola Cola plant. As far as everyone was concerned, Marjorie seemed thrilled with the way her life was shaping up, but then she broke off the engagement. Marjorie explained her decision, saying that Bill was trying to force her to convert to Judaism, something she didn't want to do. But the truth was, Marjorie was scared to commit. She didn't know why, she just knew that she couldn't. She was also experiencing extreme mood swings and mania. One moment she was up, the next she was down. Sometimes she was so impulsive she couldn't explain it. Other times, she was the same old charming Marjorie she had always been. She just couldn't find a way to stay stable. As a result, Marjorie was always looking for someone to help her through her manic phases. She may not have wanted to commit to Bill, but that didn't mean she wanted to be alone. She needed someone else in her life, even if the relationship was unhealthy. So when she met the next guy only a few months later, things got serious right away. 29-year-old Bob Thomas was a handsome Navy veteran who likely reminded Marjorie of her beloved grandfather. But unlike him, Thomas had a dark side. He had a history of abusing women. He suffered from PTSD, and he lived with schizophrenia. If Marjorie was volatile at times, Bob was even worse. They dated for seven months and fought constantly. When they parted ways, Marjorie figured it was probably for the best. But at least the relationship seemed to teach Marjorie something about herself. She needed help. So at the beginning of August 1972, 23-year-old Marjorie finally went to see a medical professional for the first time since her self-described battle with anorexia. She was assigned a psychiatric caseworker who listened as Marjorie talked and talked and talked. Sometimes Marjorie couldn't stop herself from talking. That day, the caseworker diagnosed her with bipolar disorder. For Marjorie, the diagnosis actually came as a relief. For the first time, everything made sense. She could explain why she was the way she was, why she had so many problems with commitment and anxiety, why she couldn't hold down a job. But the caseworker added one other note to her file that Marjorie was not so happy with. She said Marjorie displayed a deep-seated hatred of men. For years after, she adamantly denied that claim, but the observation didn't seem far off the mark. Unfortunately, while the social worker was licensed to diagnose Marjorie, she wasn't permitted to prescribe her any medication. And instead of referring her to a doctor who could, the caseworker decided to simply send Marjorie on her way. Despite this, Marjorie's life seemed to improve. Or at least, it didn't get worse. For the next few years, she struggled to stay in any one job, but she more or less continued to work. She even ended up going to graduate school to get her master's degree in education. When she graduated in 1975, she took a job as a high school substitute teaching American history. She figured a permanent position in the Erie school district wouldn't be too tough to obtain. After all, her mother was still a teacher there. Marjorie had an in. But despite that, Marjorie wasn't able to secure the job. She blamed her mother for not doing enough to help and refusing to pull in favors for her. Their relationship had always been somewhat strained. But in Marjorie's eyes, this was a complete and utter betrayal. And the 26-year-old began to spiral. She was unemployed, living by herself, and dealing with bipolar disorder, with no medication. Plus, she was growing more paranoid by the day. At some point, she became convinced her neighborhood was rife with crime, and even went out and bought a gun. She never ended up using it, but the fact she purchased it at all hinted at her fragile mental state. Things went further downhill until finally, on May 5, 1976, Marjorie met with a licensed psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Callahan. Unlike the social worker, he wrote Marjorie a prescription, the first time she'd ever been on medication for bipolar disorder. It seemed to help, so Marjorie kept coming back. For the next 14 months, she met with Callahan at least once every two weeks, sometimes more. But as time went on, Marjorie struggled to maintain her medication schedule, though when she stayed on track, it helped to stabilize her mood swings. But in 1977, Dr. Callahan moved away from Erie, bringing to an end his sessions with Marjorie. When they parted ways, he recommended that she continue treatment and medication, but he also knew Marjorie, and he feared that she would make up her own rules even if they hurt her or someone else. Up next, Marjorie has her first brush with the law, but certainly not her last. Listeners, I am thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for ParCast. It's the four-year anniversary of another fantastic podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, there's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Wardos, Ed Gein, and, coming soon, the night stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on Couples Who Kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In 1972, reeling from two failed relationships, Marjorie Deal sought professional help. She wanted to get to the root of the behavioral problems that plagued her life. For the next five years, she was in and out of treatment, until finally a psychiatrist in 1977 prescribed her medication. After that, 28-year-old Marjorie felt ready to take on the world and get a job. But despite her impressive education, Marjorie's disjointed resume made it hard for her to convince any high-paying employer to take her seriously. She was stuck with minimum-wage secretarial positions as her only real options. And that just wasn't good enough. After all, ever since she'd been a young girl, Marjorie had valued one thing above all else — money. She believed that the dollars in her bank account were a direct indication of her worth as a person. So, instead of waiting around for a better offer, Marjorie set out to design her own perfect job, one where she could make a lot of money with very little effort. By 1980, Marjorie had founded the Erie Women's Center. It offered several services, but the one it was best known for was arranging abortions. Marjorie would meet with local women, determine whether they could have the operation, then refer them to a clinic in Buffalo, New York. The thing was, Marjorie made money from each referral, so she was incentivized to make them every chance she got. This meant that sometimes she lied about pregnancy results just to collect the fee. Erie police finally caught wind of Marjorie's scam and set out to put a stop to it. To catch her out, they set up a sting operation. In April of 1980, the cops sent in one of their undercover officers to meet with Marjorie. She welcomed the woman and asked her for a urine sample. The officer complied, but secretly gave Marjorie the sample of a male police officer. Despite this, Marjorie came back and claimed that the woman was pregnant. She referred her to the Buffalo Clinic for an abortion. Then she billed the undercover cop $150 for her services. That was all they needed. Before Marjorie knew it, she was under arrest for criminal conspiracy and theft by deception. But Marjorie avoided any jail time. It was her first offense and a non-violent one to boot, so the district attorney agreed to put her into an Accelerated Rehabilitative Disposition Program, or ARD for short. ARD defendants are given probation sentences rather than prison time and aren't required to plead guilty. So long as they complete their probation, their crime doesn't go on their record either. So on November 30th, 1982, an eerie judge discharged Marjorie from the ARD program and she walked away with a clean record, as if the arrest had never happened. And for a little while, things were relatively calm for Marjorie. But two years later, in 1984, love came calling again. Marjorie reconnected with an old flame, Bob Thomas, the Navy veteran with mental health issues. Like Marjorie, Bob's mental state was no better than it had been a decade earlier. 34-year-old Marjorie and 43-year-old Bob brought out the worst in each other. Just like before, they fought constantly, sometimes physically. They also lived in squalor. Marjorie had always been a bit of a pack rat, but while they lived together, she became a flat-out hoarder. It might seem contradictory that a woman obsessed with outward perfection could also be a hoarder, but according to researchers Randy Frost, Gail Steckety, and David Tolan, there's actually an interesting connection between the two states. For example, a typical perfectionist might have a sparkling house, but sometimes perfectionism manifests itself in a negative way. A person can become so afraid of making the wrong decision that they simply don't make any decision at all. They might get so overwhelmed by the fear of throwing out something they may one day need that they instead choose to keep everything. So for the next five months, as her anxiety over her choices grew, Marjorie's hoarding intensified. She and Bob remained together, both enabling the other's worst tendencies. Their tempers collided, the poor living conditions worsened, and Bob's abusive behavior got scarier. She said that he would beat her when she did anything that upset him, and on at least one occasion... He allegedly forced her to perform oral sex while he slapped and punched her. Things were so bad that Marjorie started to fear for her own safety. Or at least, that's what she said. Some argued that it was Bob who should have been afraid of Marjorie. Either way, on July 25, 1984, 35-year-old Marjorie went to a gun store. There, she picked out a 35 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. She asked the store clerk if it could kill a person, then quickly clarified that it was for intruders. Before finishing the purchase, Marjorie had to fill out an application form. Where it asked if she had any mental illness, she scribbled, no. Five days later, in the early hours of July 30th, she approached Bob's sleeping form. She raised the revolver and shot him six times. Later that day, Marjorie told a friend what she'd done, claiming it was in self-defense. Then she asked her friend for help getting rid of the body. But instead of helping her, the friend called her sister. Word got around, eventually reaching local authorities. By 6 p.m. that evening, the police had found Bob's body in Marjorie's house. They arrested Marjorie, who still had the gun on her and who still claimed the slaying was in self-defense. But because of her bipolar diagnosis, there was disagreement over whether or not she was mentally competent to stand trial. Between 1984 and 1987, Four separate medical professionals evaluated Marjorie, and all of them deemed her mentally incompetent. Eventually, in September 1987, Marjorie was transferred from the Erie County Prison to Mayview State Hospital to receive better treatment. While there, doctors tried several medications to help her, but each new prescription seemed to have horrible side effects, and Marjorie had to stop taking each one. Until finally, in January 1988, Marjorie refused to take any medication at all. Living with the ups and downs of bipolar disorder was far preferable to dealing with unbearable rashes, increased paranoia, and obsessive-compulsive tendencies, all side effects of the medication. And under the law, the hospital couldn't force her to take any drugs against her will. However, without any medication, Marjorie turned out to be sharper. In February of 1988, the court reversed its decision. 39-year-old Marjorie was deemed competent and meant she was finally going to court. Her trial for first-degree murder started in May of 1988. The prosecution argued that Bob Thomas's murder was premeditated, while Marjorie's lawyers contended that she had acted out of self-defense. They told the court that the culture of abuse in her home was so bad that she felt afraid of her boyfriend, even as he was sleeping. To Marjorie's surprise, the jury believed her. On June 1st, they returned with a verdict of not guilty. Marjorie had to smile. The jury's decision only served to reinforce a belief she'd held all her life. She was better than everyone else, and she could get away with anything. You might think that after her abusive relationship and subsequent murder trial, Marjorie would be inclined to stay away from men for good, especially abusive, violent ones, but she had no such intentions. One year later, 40-year-old Marjorie met Richard Armstrong, a 42-year-old musician and paranoid schizophrenic. They bonded over a shared love of music and education, and their connection quickly turned into complete and utter infatuation. But Richard was similar to the men of Marjorie's past. He was irritable, angry, and suspicious at all times, and Marjorie felt the full brunt of that personality— If he suspected anything unusual, even situations entirely fabricated in his own mind, he took out his anger on Marjorie. Marjorie seemed well aware of his volatile nature going into the relationship. By most accounts, Richard's abuse began as soon as they started dating, maybe even the first night they spent together. At one point, he was even arrested for assaulting her in public. After he served a short stint in jail, Marjorie didn't just take him back, she married him. On January 21, 1991, she became Marjorie Deal Armstrong, a name she kept for the rest of her life. Despite his violent nature, Marjorie loved her husband. But then, in August of 1992, about a year and a half into their marriage, Richard had a stroke. He was rushed to the ER, where doctors did an examination and decided that he would recover. But then, that evening, while in a hospital bed, he lost consciousness. No one had noticed that his brain was bleeding. He fell into a coma and was declared brain dead. Two days later, his heart stopped. Richard was dead. Marjorie was distraught. She sued the hospital for malpractice, blaming them for not catching the hemorrhage in time. Eventually, she received a quarter-million-dollar settlement. Despite the fact that it was more money than she had ever had before, Marjorie still felt cheated. She deserved more. It became an obsession. At first, thinking about her wealth might have been a coping method for her grief, but soon enough, it was all Marjorie could think about. From then on, Marjorie was constantly concerned about her money, how much she had, where she could get more, and who might be coming for it. Up next, Marjorie's inheritance is threatened, and her solution leads her into uncharted territory. Now, back to the story. After being acquitted for murdering her boyfriend in his sleep, Marjorie Deal met and married Richard Armstrong. Like her other relationships, it was an abusive one, and it ended tragically, with Richard suffering a stroke and dying of a brain hemorrhage. Once again, 43-year-old Marjorie was on her own. But she wouldn't be alone for long, In 1993, Marjorie had no plans to fall for another man. She still had her late husband on her mind, and she thought no one could ever live up to him. Then she met 35-year-old James Roden, or Jim, as everyone called him. If Marjorie had a type, Jim fit it to a T. Perhaps not in physical appearance, but definitely in personality, he was obsessive and violent. After only meeting Marjorie a few times, he showed up on her porch with his suitcases and basically forced her into cohabitating with him. Then, after only a few months of living together, he pushed Marjorie into a panel of broken glass during a fight. She was cut up so badly that she had to get six stitches. But despite the awful abuse, she took him back, time and time again, just as she had with all the others. According to researcher Juan Herrero and colleagues, the fact that Marjorie had been in multiple abusive relationships before this point actually made her more likely to be a continued victim of abuse. It's a vicious cycle, and women who have higher levels of psychological difficulties are even more vulnerable. And with every new abusive relationship, breaking the cycle only becomes harder. For Marjorie, it got to the point where this was the only type of relationship she knew. So the two fell into a twisted version of domestic bliss for the next five or so years. Things continued like this until July of 2000, when Marjorie got some unexpected news. Her mother was dead. Marjorie had long ago fallen out with her parents, but news of her mother's death still hit her hard. For a short while, she grieved. Then, she turned greedy. In the years since Marjorie's estrangement, Agnes and Harold Deal had amassed a small fortune, $1.8 million, mostly in municipal bonds. Marjorie thought all that money was due to her. As far as she was concerned, it was her inheritance— But her father was still alive, which meant he had control over the estate, and he wasn't particularly fond of his daughter at this point, so he chose to share his wealth with his friends and neighbors by doing things like helping some of them pay off loans or paying to get their cars fixed. And that really made Marjorie mad. He was giving away her money. In fact, Marjorie was so angry that she asked her friend, Ken Barnes, a question, one that changed things forever. Barnes was a television repairman by day and drug dealer and pimp by night. He'd met Marjorie and Jim fishing on the pier, and they'd become good friends. They were close enough that Marjorie felt comfortable asking him for a serious favor. She wanted to hire him to kill her father. She wanted her money, and she wanted it before more of it was given away. So she had to take her father out of the picture. According to Barnes, he never took Marjorie seriously. His joking response to her was that it would cost her a pretty penny. When she asked how much, he threw out a ridiculous number, $200,000. But then Marjorie agreed. She just needed to drum up the money. And she knew just how to do it. Rob a bank. At some point, Barnes must have come around to the fact that Marjorie was dead serious. She wouldn't let the subject drop. In fact, she started working out the details and updated Barnes on how it was all going to go down. She also reconnected with an old flame who agreed to help. 59-year-old Bill Rothstein, her former fiancé. Though they'd only had infrequent contact over the years, it seemed that he had never truly gotten over Marjorie. She still had a strange hold over him. Together, the three started to plot out the details of their heist. Marjorie's current boyfriend, Jim, was supposed to be the getaway driver in the developing plan. But at some point, he got cold feet about the whole thing and threatened to go to the authorities. Marjorie couldn't let that happen. So on August tenth, two 2003, history repeated itself. 54 year old Marjorie shot Jim twice in the back as he lay sleeping. He died instantly. And once again, Marjorie wanted help getting rid of the body, but this time she called on someone she knew would help her Bill Rothstein. He seemingly had no qualms about getting involved. He helped transport the body back to his house, stuffed it into a freezer in his garage, and then sawed the murder weapon into pieces before melting them down. Now they were really in it. Both Marjorie and Rothstein were committed to going through with the bank heist. But they didn't just want to rob the bank. They wanted to show off a little, and that's how they dreamed up one of history's most elaborate and convoluted bank heists. Marjorie, Rothstein, and Barnes concocted the plan together. They wanted to send someone into Erie's PNC bank with a fake bomb strapped to their neck with letters demanding money. But none of them wanted to be the one to walk through the doors. They needed a fall guy, someone who, if caught, could claim they were forced into it. Barnes ended up asking a sex worker he knew, Jessica Hoopsick, for help finding the perfect candidate. And it turned out that Jessica had one client who she described as a bit of a pushover, 46-year-old Brian Wells. She introduced Brian to Barnes and Marjorie, and they paid Jessica $1,500 for her troubles. She'd earned it, they thought, because Brian Wells was perfect. A pizza delivery man who'd never graduated high school, Brian was a man of simple pleasures. He liked three things—puzzles, cocaine, and Jessica Hoopsick. When she brought him by Barnes's house, Brian thought nothing of it— After all, Barnes was the local cocaine dealer. Brian assumed he and Jessica were simply picking up drugs. He had no idea that Barnes was scouting him out for something more sinister. It's unclear if Brian was ever informed about the scheme, or if he had anything to do with the planning of it. But here's what we do know. On August 28th, Marjorie met Ken Barnes at his house, then they met Rothstein at a nearby gas station. Using a payphone, they made a call to Mama Mia's Pizzeria. They placed an order for two pepperoni and sausage pizzas and gave an address. As planned, Brian Wells was the delivery man on hand, and he drove the order out to a clearing near Rothstein's house. There, he was met by Marjorie, Rothstein, and Barnes, plus Rothstein's roommate, Floyd Stockton, and Brian's co-worker, Robert Pinetti, whose exact involvement is still a mystery. Brian handed over the pizzas, then went to leave. But before he could get back to his car, Marjorie and Rothstein held him down. Then, Floyd snapped a collar around Brian's neck and told him that it was a bomb. It's unclear whether they told him the bomb was real or fake at this point, but we do know they told him to go to PNC Bank, hand over a letter with their demands, and collect $250,000. But this is where things start getting really bizarre. Rather than just giving him a rendezvous point, they told Brian that he had to follow a set of instructions. These would lead him on a scavenger hunt across town in search of the keys to unlock the collar bomb from his neck. Brian was quiet as he listened to the instructions. He allowed Marjorie to put a second shirt on him to cover up the bomb. Then Rothstein handed over a cane that was actually a disguised gun. He told Brian to use the pistol if there was trouble. Throughout it all, Brian remained strangely calm, as if he didn't believe the bomb could possibly be real. Surely this was all just a ruse to confuse the authorities. So, Wells left the meeting spot and drove straight to PNC Bank. He strolled into the lobby as if he didn't have a care in the world. In fact, he was so calm that he grabbed a lollipop out of a bowl. Then he stepped up to a teller and handed over the letter with the robber's demands. He told her that he had a bomb around his neck and she needed to do what he said, otherwise it would go off. Then he waited. He never even bothered raising his hidden gun. He just sucked on the lollipop like he had all the time in the world. After all, he thought it was all just a bluff. There was no way the collar would actually detonate. But if that's what Brian thought, well, he was wrong. The bomb wasn't fake at all. It was very, very real. And he was running out of time. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with Part 2 and the unbelievable resolution to the pizza bomber case. For more information on Marjorie Deal Armstrong, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mania and Marjorie Deal Armstrong by Jerry Clark and Ed Palatella extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joanna Philbin and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years' worth, and catch new episodes weekly. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.